Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. As we were praying this morning, I had the thought that uh, these are dark and difficult days, and then I felt the conviction of God saying, stop being a wimp, and... um, you know, it is difficult, and I know for, for some who have been sick or maybe economically you've been impacted, uh, these are difficult days for you, but uh, I just want us to remember that the church throughout history has been through much darker and much more difficult days than the current days we are facing, and, uh, and that's not to undermine our reality, but for us just to maybe take stock of uh, these times that we find ourselves in. And to remember that uh, God has never, ever forsaken his church. And the church has been through uh, some incredibly difficult seasons historically. And yet the church continues to uh, expand because uh, Jesus is alive and he's the head of the church. And he is building his church. And even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so as we continue in our Elect Exile series, we're busy preaching through 1 Peter. We've got now to the end of chapter 4, and Peter is about to summarize his teaching on suffering. And so this is really a very relevant topic that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Uh, He's defined it for us in two ways. There is suffering that is common to man, and that's because we live in a fallen and broken world, and everyone will experience some form of suffering If you're a human being, there will be pain in your life. And then there is suffering that's unique to Christians, and that's called persecution. And so there is a difference between, excuse me, human suffering and Christian suffering, which we call persecution. And often those two things overlap in the Christian life because sometimes the suffering we experience as part of our persecution comes from sinful other people who are persecuting us in. Uh, whatever trial we may be facing. And so Peter's now equipping us. He's preparing us for what's to come, for the inevitable reality of suffering in our lives. And we said that we need a good theology. We need a biblical theology of suffering so that when the pain comes and when the persecution hits, we don't ask the wrong questions. And this is the problem. The problem is that when people face these dark and difficult times, we always run to the wrong questions. We always run to, run to the wrong parts of our thoughts and our hearts. And we begin to question God. And we ask God, where are you in all of this? God, this feels like you've abandoned us. Are you even here? Are you maybe even punishing us? And so we can easily become angry, we can become frustrated, we can get bitter, and we can get disillusioned with God. And so Peter is helping us to deal with these realities. And so let's listen to Peter and his final summary. Let's listen to Peter's sage advice for us. 1 Peter 4 verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let, no one, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We're going to approach this text uh, in four ways. There are four very unique Christian paradoxes that we find in these verses. And these four paradoxes are as following. The first one is joy in the face of trial. Secondly, blessing in the face of insult. Third, praise in the face of persecution. And then lastly, trust in the face of judgment. Let's look at the first one, joy in the face of trials. Peter opens the text and he says, Beloved. And this is an endearing term. Peter calls them beloved because he's about to reinforce a very difficult teaching. This is not an easy truth to hear that Christian you will suffer and part of your suffering will be according to God's design God's will for you and so he wants to reassure them right up front he begins with the words beloved and these are powerful words this is a covenant term this is a covenant term of God's endearing heart towards his people and so Peter's reminding us of our standing before God. Peter is reassuring these people who are going to go through fiery trials that they are God's beloved. You don't need to question. You don't need to doubt. You don't need to ask those sad questions of God. Is this your punishment? God, is this your abandonment? And so Peter says, no, you are beloved. You are the elect, he says. You are an elect exile. You are my chosen race. You are my royal priests. You are beloved. You are loved unconditionally by the Father. But then he moves quickly and swiftly, doesn't he? Beloved, he says, do not be surprised. The inevitable reality of suffering. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. In other words, suffering is coming to all faithful Christians. There will be a measure of of persecution. Yes, they, like we said, there's human suffering and then there's persecution. And he says, don't be surprised. Be ready. Be ready. This is not some strange event. In other words, he's saying that we need to adjust our expectations accordingly. He's saying that when you follow Jesus, the Christian path is not going to be a smooth and easy road. There are going to be bumps and holes in the road that we need to navigate carefully. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I think he's almost suggesting that you should be surprised when you do not suffer for your faith. He says it the other way around. He says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes. But I think that there's something that we could look at. We could go, actually... Maybe I should be surprised at the fact that I'm not being persecuted. Maybe it's because I'm too much like the world. 
and not enough like Christ. And that would be an interesting kind of self-reflecting moment for us. But uh, the paradox that we see here is then what he says next. So we have the inevitable reality of suffering. Don't be surprised, it's coming. And then he says, this is how you should respond in light of it. But rejoice. But rejoice. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. There's the tension. I hope you see the tension between joy and suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering, he says. And we've got to ask, well, how, Peter? How? The Surely when there is suffering, there's questions, there's hurts, there's tears. After all, this is a fiery trial, right? This isn't a friendly trial. This is a fiery trial, as Peter says. So, okay, Peter, how do we then deal with this? How do we find joy in the face of suffering? How do we? Because generally it's sadness that we experience. Generally it's sorrow in the face of suffering. And Peter, you're telling us, that we should rejoice. And so he suggests a few reasons. He says, a first reason could be this, that when the trial comes upon you, look, look at what he says, it's come to, to test you, he says. It's come to test you. In other words, it's been filtered by the Father. It's coming through the Father's hand. It's coming by design. The test is for you. It's testing your faith. It's testing you for your good. It's testing you to strengthen you and to purify you. Remember, he said this back in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, we read this. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There we see the, the, the tension again between grief and joy. He has the reason, so that, verse 7, so that the tested, there it is again, the tested, what? Genuineness of your faith. See, this is, this is more precious to God, he says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so you, you're feeling the test. You're feeling the weight of the test. You may even be feeling the sorrow of the test. And Peter is saying, just, just remember the bigger purpose. Remember the grander design. What is God doing? Is he seeking to purify your faith so that you would be ready at the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ? And so all of this to say that God has a purpose for this trial. God has a purpose for your test. It's not some random, outside of God's control, outside of God's sovereign plan. Verse 19 tells us that it's by His design, according to His will. So that's the first thing we see. It's a, it's a test from God or allowed by God for the genuineness of your faith, for the sanctifying of your, of your faith to prepare you to be more like Jesus so that when you meet him, there is praise. Then he says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That word insofar is the key word here. It means participation. The fact that you are participating. In other words, your suffering, this trial or this test, is designed... We're going a little deeper now. What's this test? It's designed to strengthen your connection to Christ insofar as you share 
as you participate, as you are in union with Christ. And so this trial and this test is designed to send you to Christ. It's designed to send you to Jesus, and at the same time, it's designed to sever your attachments to the world, to to the things that you think would bring you hope, to the things that you have maybe trusted in that won't really deliver. And so, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, in other words, God has designed these trials and these tests to do two things, to cut the cords of our temporary attachments, of fleeting pleasures and of sinful things, and at the same time of cutting our cords to those temporary things, He's causing us to run to Christ and to find our joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Now, that's the theory. And I know that if you haven't experienced this, it really can only just sound like theory. But I want to say that when we read through church history and when we talk to the saints around us and when we talk to people who are going through hardship, the overwhelming testimony of those who go through valleys, who walk through the shadows of death, testify to this, that they have been drawn closer to Christ, nearer to Him, that their fellowship with Jesus has deepened. And if it hasn't, then the tested genuineness of your faith really has been exposed. Because maybe it's not genuine faith. But if the tested genuineness of your faith is genuine, what it does is it severs the cords of the attachments of your heart to temporary worldly things, and it drives you into fellowship with Christ. This is the design of God for your life. And so that's the first thing we see. The first paradox is joy in the midst of suffering. And the only way we can have joy is because God our Father has designed these things for our good. The second paradox we see in verse 14, and that is blessing in the face of insult. I'll read it again, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Talk about a paradox. You are blessed when you've been insulted for your faith. How, Peter? Well, he tells us, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. In other words, he's saying there, this is the, the design. This is the indication that you really belong to Christ. This is one of the most remarkable pictures for your own life that you truly are a Christian, that you have been ridiculed, maybe mocked, maybe isolated, maybe rejected, canceled, whatever terms we want to use, this is a sign to you that you belong to Christ. The phrase that he uses is the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, you're truly a believer, You're a faithful believer. You've been mocked for being a Christian. And Peter is saying it's a sign that God's Spirit is upon you. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is that Peter is borrowing this phrase from Isaiah chapter 11. And in Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah is saying that this is going to be the sign that marks out Jesus. 
Jesus will have the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rest upon him. And what happened to him? Well, he was insulted and he was mocked and he was rejected and he was despised. But now think about what Peter is saying for us. What Peter is saying is that the same spirit that rested upon Christ now rests upon you. How do we know that, Peter? Well, he says, because you've been insulted for his name. Notice it's not for your errors or your failings or your mistakes. No, no, it's for bearing his name. In other words, your hostile persecutors, that, 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 that culture out there, that people, the, 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 the people that have been mocking you, the people that have been accusing you of being a Christ follower, of, of maybe holding to, to ancient truths or outdated truths or whatever it might be, they're actually assuring you, it's actually a testimony to you that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. That the spirit of glory, the spirit of God rests upon you. The Apostle Paul kind of confirms what Peter is saying here in 2 Timothy. When he writes to Timothy in chapter 3 verse 12, look at what he says. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be persecuted if you live a godly life. Notice it's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory, godliness, the Spirit of God upon you. It's a confirmation. Don't see persecution, don't see insults as a negative sign. Peter is saying it's a sign that God's Spirit is at work in you. All who desire to live a godly life will experience persecution. And so let's just develop that a bit more. He goes on then to say this in point number three from verse 15 and 16. And now we're talking about praise in the face of persecution. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, you're just getting involved in everyone else's business. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, notice again, he, he draws the distinction. Let him not be ashamed. There's no shame in that. All right, Because he's just told us that the Spirit of God and glory rests upon you. But let him glorify God in that name. And so again, we see the paradox of suffering and praise, giving glory to God in the face of persecution. But notice also that it's one thing to suffer for your faith, but Peter is saying don't confuse that for suffering for your own failings. If you have sinned, and he gives examples as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or you meddling in other people's business. And I'm like, wow, you put meddling with murderer. This is interesting because so often we can kind of rank our sins. And, uh, and he's really just throwing that in there just to mess up our kind of understanding of uh, bad sins versus not so bad sins. And meddling is just... Putting your, putting your nose into someone else's business that sh it shouldn't be there. It's just gossip and slander and all those things. And he's saying it's one thing to suffer for your faith, but it's another thing altogether to suffer for your own failings. Don't confuse those. In other words, Peter is saying you can't claim all suffering as persecution. That's not persecution. That's your own mistakes. 
If you break the law and you are punished, that's not persecution, he says. But when persecution comes because of your faithfulness to Christ, and really it's all about faithfulness to Christ. When persecution comes because of your faithfulness to Christ, what should you do? Peter says, suggests us two things. He firstly says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In other words, there's no shame attached to your faithful witness to Jesus. No shame. Don't be ashamed. There is a shame attached to being a murderer, a thief, and a meddler. There's, that's shameful practice. If you're suffering because of those things, that's shameful. But now you are being faithful to Christ. You have rejected the path of sinful life. You're, you're seeking to be obedient to Christ in all ways. You're seeking to follow the teachings of Christ. There is no shame in that. You may be rejected. You may be laughed at. There's no shame in that at all. But secondly, he says, we are to praise God in the midst of it. Let him not be ashamed, firstly. Then secondly, he says, but let him glorify God in that name. In other words, count it joy or count yourself worthy of bearing his name. And so he's wanting us to not back off. He says, glorify God. Praise God in the face of persecution. Don't back off. Don't bend. Don't blend in. But continue to serve God. Continue to live a God-glorifying life. I think there's two things he's saying here. One is that the life that you have been living that's being persecuted, the fact that you're holding fast to biblical truth is bringing glory to God. If you compromise on biblical truth, you are not bringing glory to God. And so he says, continue to bring glory to God. Don't give up on that. Don't give up on, on, on orthodox historical truth. Continue in those truths. And in doing so, you will be persecuted, but you will be bringing glory to God. And so here's the tension I want you to see. Who's more important? Because people often say this, well, the world's watching us. You know? Everybody out there is watching us, and maybe we need to just adjust things. Maybe we need to just adjust some of our things, some of our teachings, some of our practices, some of our ethics, so that the world may feel a little more accepted. They're watching us. Well, I want to say to us that God is also watching us. God is watching us. Yes, they're watching us, but God is watching us. And it's way more important than we, that we please God than that we please man. I mean, it should be obvious that, that the world, we shouldn't give the world um, reason to point fingers at us. But our main focus as Christians is not on pleasing the world. That's not our main focus. Our main focus is on bringing glory to God. Yes, we need to have a good witness. And yes, we need to be good citizens in society. But that watching, the watching of the world, is not our primary focus. It's the eye of God that we want to be more concerned about. Why? Because... We're not going to be judged at the end of the day by a watching world. We will be judged by a holy, righteous God. It's not the standards of the world that we would have to give an account for. It's the standards of God that we will have to give an account for. And so, church, we must fear God. We must fear God's verdict above all others. Man's opinion, man's comments, 
man's news report, man's uh, Twitter feed, none of that really matters. We need to stop fearing what man says and start fearing what God says above man's word. Live for the glory of God. And then our final paradox, number four, is trust in the face of judgment. Peter then brings it to a close in verse 17 through 19. He says, for it is the time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, this is an interesting verse. I'm sure you're quite familiar with it. But when Peter speaks of the household of God, you know, in verse 13, I think that's where we started, he went from beloved, very individual, very personal, and now it's very corporate, very inclusive, the whole household. And there is a sense in which he has the whole church in view. He has the people of God in view. In some commentaries say that he has the temple the, the, the kind of centerpiece of, of, of what the Jews would have considered where the people of God gather. And so he's, he's got the whole church in mind, and he's saying that judgment is going to begin with the church. Judgment is beginning at the household of God. Now, what judgment is this? And uh, it would be fair to say, and I think it's accurate, that this is not final judgment. This is not the final judgment at the end of the ages. That's still coming. But there is an echo of that future final judgment that is beginning. And so what he's referring to here has two layers to it. One is a fatherly discipline for the church, which would be that classic Hebrews 12 passage where you know, a heavenly father disciplines his children. And so he's disciplining us with a refining fire, a fire of judgment that God sends to purify and sanctify his church. But the second layer, which I think is what he has more in view here, is that this is not just a refining fire for an individual, but this is a sorting fire. This is a sifting fire. And this is a fire of judgment that comes upon the church to sort out the sheep and the goats. Because that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. At the end of the age, at the final judgment, there will be a final sorting. And Peter is saying that that has even begun now. That throughout church history, there will be a sense of judgment in suffering and in trials that will be an echo of future final judgment where God is going to separate the true believer from the false believer. And there's nothing quite like suffering to do that. That God will send and design trials to his church to sift and to sort. And people have spoken to me in these last days, and, and again, I just want to say that you know, these are difficult days, but we must just be careful that we don't uh, fall into a little self-pity party because they could be far worse. But people have asked, well, what is God doing? What is God doing in these days? And, and one of the things that, 
that we do sense God is doing is these two things. He is refining with fire his people. There is a sense in which we're all being tested and God is refining our faith. But secondly, there is a sorting. There is a sorting of the sheep and the goats. That, that kind of mushy middle that I've referred to is, is being sorted out where now we see you're either hot or you're cold. Uh, and, and we're seeing that the false believers are really just falling away and true believers are persevering and continuing in their faith. And so that's this judgment that falls upon the church. And it's begun already, Peter says. And it continues until the ultimate final judgment. Then he wraps it up in verse 19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... What must we do? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's the, the paradox. Trust in the midst of judgment. And how do we trust if we're being judged by God? Well, he tells us he is a faithful God. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator. In other words, he's not only sovereign, he's the creator, but he's a faithful God. In all things. He's sovereign over all things and he's faithful in all things. And so you can trust him. If he's sovereign, if he's the creator, then you can trust him in your trial. He is faithful. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus entrusted himself. Look at this. Peter reminds us in chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of Jesus, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. To him who judges justly. And so Peter says, that's what Jesus did. That's what you do. When the trials come, when the persecution comes, when the suffering comes, when the judgment designed by God comes, what do you do? You entrust your soul to a faithful God who's not only sovereign over all things, but he's faithful in all things. I want to end with a warning, however, Because verse 18 is a quote from the Old Testament. And there is a warning here, which I think spills over into the Christian life, but the warning is directed at the non-Christian. And so I just want to speak just for a minute to the non-Christian. And I know that maybe there's not a non-Christian watching or listening, but I want to say it because this is what the text is saying. And so listen carefully. If judgment begins with the house of God, if judgment begins with the people of God, what will become of those who do not obey God? Verse 17 and 18. And if it begins with us, Peter says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, there's that sorting, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, Peter's saying, If God is dealing with sin and sifting and refining so seriously, how much more will he deal with unrepentant sin at the end of the age? And so if you aren't a believer, and if you're just considering Christianity, maybe you're sitting on the fence, maybe maybe you're one of those lukewarm Christians and you're feeling shaken in your faith right now, then this is a warning to you. I want us all to hear Peter's alarm bell sounding here. The alarm bell of Peter is this. You are not safe outside of Christ. There is no refuge 
outside of Christ. There is no way you could hear me today and say, well, okay, preacher, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to take my chances. No, don't do that. Because you will not find a loophole in God's arrangements. Given the discipline of God towards his beloved people, how will you escape outside of Christ? There is no refuge from the judgment that's falling. There is no way of escape outside of Christ. And here's the good news. It's only in Christ that we find our refuge. Proverbs 18 verse 10, I don't have it on the screen, but just listen, it says, the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it. That's what Peter is saying to you today. Run, run to Jesus, run to the strong tower. The judgment of God will come. It's already coming to the church. And it will come at the end of the age. And if you're outside of Christ, you will not stand. So Jesus is your only refuge. And the good news is that Jesus has already borne the judgment of God. That final judgment that would fall upon us was, was placed on Christ. In the words of the great hymn, it says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, the judgment of God fell on Jesus so that I may be pardoned. And so Christian, non-Christian, I guess we're hearing this as an exhortation and a warning from the Apostle Peter. Not only is he shaping us to have a good theology of suffering, but there is a call here to already take God seriously. And to put him as a priority in our lives. And to search our own hearts and to make sure that I've run to Christ for salvation. Let's pray together and then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the Apostle Peter's writings that were so instrumental in forming and shaping the early church. And we thank you that even now we are feeding from his words. The words that Jesus said to Peter were, Peter, feed my sheep. And that's still happening even now. You are feeding your flock. And we thank you, Lord, that we can benefit from the life of Peter through your word to us today. Lord, we want to pray that you would Take this word and sink it deep into our hearts with two things, with conviction as well as with comfort, that we can know that you are our heavenly Father and that we are your beloved. We are not some estranged people. We are not some orphaned people. We are the children of God. Judgment begins at the house of God. You are the house of God. You are the people of God. You are the beloved of God. And so we thank you that we are yours. And if we are yours, then you are faithful. Even in the trial, even in the suffering, you are a faithful God. And you have a design in this test, in this trial, whatever we are facing. We pray, Lord, that we would find joy in the midst of suffering. That we would find praise in the midst of persecution. 
Lord, that you would help us to live for the glory of God above the glory of man. That, Lord, we would find our rest and our refuge in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us, shape us, form us, mold us to become more like Jesus, which includes carrying our cross, denying ourselves, so that we may decrease and Christ may increase. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to share in communion, and uh, our staff team is here. We're going to participate together, and so it's not just a, it's not just online, but largely and mostly it is online. And so, um, just want to remind you on the the night that Jesus was betrayed, that uh, he gathered with his disciples. And uh, they broke bread and they shared a meal together. And then he said those incredible words, you know, take this bread uh, and eat it. It's my body given for you. And there and then we see the picture of Christ's own suffering in his brokenness for us. And so as we take the bread, and I encourage you to take some bread now and, uh, and break it. And as you break it, just get ready to... Uh, consider what Christ went through, his sufferings and his persecution and his pain on our behalf. And, and some of the most profound words are, take and eat. This is my body. And so as we eat, we are, we are finding that we are joined to Christ. You know, the text there says, as you share in Christ's sufferings. And this is a visible picture of us participating in Christ's own sufferings. And so, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your body. We thank you for your sufferings that you went through. We thank you that you were broken so that we might be healed. You, 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 you were slain. You, were, you suffered as the suffering servant in our place for our sins. Thank you that you took upon yourself the righteous wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out in, upon Christ for our sin. And so we thank you, Lord, that, that any judgment that we now receive is a mediated judgment. It's a judgment that goes through the cross. It's not a, a condemnation because in Christ there is no condemnation. And so any judgment that we experience from the hand of the Father is a loving judgment, a righteous judgment for our good so that we may sever the attachments of worldly things and that we may run to Christ, run to Him who bore our sin. And so, Jesus, we thank You for Your body and we eat of it now. Let's eat together. That same night, Jesus took the cup and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink it, 
in remembrance of me for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we thank you for your blood that was spilled. The blood that was pictured in the lambs that were slain throughout Old Testament history. The blood of the lamb that was sprinkled on the doorposts of the Exodus. Lord, we think upon the altar and the sacrifice. And you fulfilled all of that in your blood. Your shedded Your shed blood was the fulfillment of all of those pictures. Where John pointed to you and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's only because of your blood, the once for all sacrifice. And as we drink it together, I want to pray, Lord, that not only would we know forgiveness, Not only would we remember your sacrifice, but right now in this moment that we would sense that we are joined. That we are one with Christ, but we are also one with one another. Even as we are scattered and even even as our church is, is watching online, Lord, may we feel the unity of the Spirit because of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Christ that cleanses and the blood of Christ that unites us. Let's drink together. I'm going to invite the music team to come up as we close in this last song. Father, we thank you for your ministry to us today. We pray, Lord, that you would presence yourself with those who are hurting. We want to pray specifically for our family and friends who are going through trials right now, who may be facing sickness in their bodies, in their health, maybe facing challenges in their home, maybe facing persecution because they are being faithful holding fast to the way of Jesus, holding fast to the teachings of Jesus. And they're being mocked or rejected or isolated. Lord, we want to pray for your bride in whatever form or fashion she finds herself now. Those who are suffering, pray that you would comfort. Lord, those who are struggling, we pray that you would encourage. Those who are being persecuted, Know that you are blessed. Blessed for bearing his name. Lord, we pray that you would especially be with us right now. By your Holy Spirit, may we sense your presence with us. We thank you, Father, that whatever we go through, Because you are sovereign over all, you will be faithful in it all. And so whether it's the valley or the mountain, you are the same. You are faithful and you are true. You are the good shepherd who never leaves. Even the one, you'll never leave us. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.